Think about the concept of rare. It's often synonymous with unique, valuable, precious. But what about in the context of disease? Rare diseases are defined as having an extremely low prevalence, yet an estimated 30 million Americans have one. That's one in 10 people. Listen as we uncover some of the inspiring stories of lives touched by rare disease and see how in the end, we all have rare in common. I'm your host, Andrew Stratton, and I have a rare disease. Since my diagnosis with partial lipodystrophy at age 37, I've become a voice for my community, first through the creation of the patient foundation, Lipodystrophy United, and now through public outreach and national awareness campaigns. We are on the road in Seattle at ACMG's annual clinical genetics meeting. We're really excited to have the rare opportunity to speak directly with members of the medical genetics community. The timing of this meeting is special as it falls during the first ever Medical Genetics Week, which is April 2nd through 6th. For more information, visit acmg.net. Welcome to ACMG. Thank you so much for sitting with us. Thrilled to be here. This Why don't is you great. Tell me a little bit about who you are, Deborah, and why yeah. you're here. So I'm Deborah Regeer, and I am first an aunt of two kids with rare disease. That was how I got interested in rare diseases. And then when I was in medical school, I fell in love with biochemistry, which is a very nerdy thing to be. I was just going to say, I yeah, don't ultra think nerd. many mm-hmm. people fall in love with biochemistry. Yeah, I, it, it's totally a nerd thing, but I loved it. And I thought this is where I belong. I belong in these crazy pathways. And when I was trying to figure out how I was going to implement what I cared about in rare diseases with my nerdy love for biochemistry, genetics and metabolism just made complete logical sense for me. And when I... I got involved in that, I realized there weren't many people with me in the training programs. There was empty spots in these training programs. I remember thinking, this is so cool. Where's everyone else? Why aren't they here with me? And I thought that's what we're missing was we weren't connecting to the people because they would see the pathways and be overwhelmed and think, oh, those are the smart doctors or those are the really complex things. And it was too intimidating. So one of my passions was, when I became a faculty member, was how do we make this a little less intimidating? How do we communicate our passion for what we do and what we know and help decrease the intimidation factor? So what is, where did you end up and what is your role now? Yeah, so I um, did my medical school at University of Utah, and then I trained at Children's National Medical Center in D.C. in pediatrics, and then the National Human Genome Research Institute at NIH for genetics and metabolism. And then I actually went back to Children's National in their Rare Disease Institute, and I'm their director of education. So that means I spend half my time trying to understand how do we better educate people at all levels about rare disease. Right. And half my time taking care of my rare disease patients and their families, which is... Those, those are two pretty important hats. It's it's a great, it's a perfect hat combination for me. I love both hats and wouldn't be willing to leave either one of them behind. So it's great. Where do you start um, when you say, okay, we're, we're going to work on a program? Do you, do you work on a specific yeah. program and say we're going to develop some education materials? Great question. So it depends on who my audience is. So one of my audiences is rare disease clinical researchers. How do we 
enable them to succeed and keep them in the field so they keep doing the clinical research that we need done. And instead of just saying, oh, let's build a curriculum that's fun and inviting, instead we said, can we use educational outcomes research to see if it's actually effective? Do people stay? Do we increase their willingness to stay in the field? So actually, I always laugh that I'm doing evidence-based education. We always want evidence-based medicine. Right. But we're trying to say, how do we educate in a way that we know is effective? So I, I did that one first, and then I started looking at more and more of the literature around education because— I'm a nerd. I like pathways and literature and studies. So I said, well, why aren't we doing this better in education? And I I heard one of my friends tell me one time, she's like, everyone tells me I'm the best genetics teacher, but all of my ratings in my classes aren't very good. And I said, because you might be the best genetics teacher, but that doesn't always mean you're a good teacher. So how do we become better educators overall? Right. So going back to how do adults learn? So let's use the education that we know, not in genetics, not in rare disease, not in metabolism, but in adult learning theory. And how do we somehow bring that into the world of rare disease? So how do we? I wish I knew all these answers. (laughs) I think that the first thing we have to do is we have to have this in the same way, I think genetics, metabolism, doctors and families and patients are incredibly courageous and gutsy and willing to try things. But as soon as you put them in front of a podium with a PowerPoint slide, they're intimidated. So I feel like I'm always saying, just use the gutsiness that you own and try something. If it flubs, it's okay. Your learners are going to forgive you because you tried something fun and interactive. Right. And taking that same courage we use in our everyday life and moving it into how we communicate and how we educate and trying something new and trying something innovative. Well, it is true. When we come to these conferences, Uh, you do see kind of the same pattern of PowerPoints and rote Mm -hmm. um, talking. And then every once in a while, you see someone who is like spices up their their information in a way that makes it like, oh, wait Mm -hmm. a minute, all of a sudden I understand what you're saying. I mean, I think that anyone who attends a meeting, you... Like, I know exactly which talk I think of when I thought they did something innovative. They did PowerPoint in a different way, and I need to go reach out to them and tell them, good job, like, you pulled it off. And those are the stories you remember, and they incorporate those stories and those visuals. And that's how we learn. We learn by having something unusual go by us, and that's when we remember it, because we're creating stories and emotional pathways to increase our memory retention. So that's how we have to do these things. Can you give me an example of a really successful communication program that you have created that that has made an impact, you think? I think it's successful. You'd have to ask my learners. And they're not all here, you know, the thousands (laughs) in the room with me, but we're going to pretend. I'm going to say, let's just pretend you have no bias. I'm I'm not biased at all. Never. No. (laughs) So last year, the pediatric residents, um, they give us four lectures a year. And I'm like, no, I need more. I need more time with them. I need more because there's 7,000 rare diseases. I need more time with them. And they said, we don't have more time. And I said, what if I promise no PowerPoints? And they said, what do you mean? And I said, I'm not going to bring a PowerPoint. If you give me six lectures, none of them will be based on PowerPoints. It'll be something interactive. It'll be something where they actually do something or create something or one of them includes playing with laser pointers in a big dark room. Like whatever it is, I will create six lectures on rare disease with no PowerPoints. And they said, you're in. We'll give you six. Excellent. And it's so funny. I was in the hallway and I was um, walking past a resident. She said, oh, Deb, Deb, I, I, I need you to go see this kid in that, that room. And I said, okay, well, 
can you tell me more or why I'm seeing this kid? They're like, that's the kid that we saw with the purple laser pointer. <laughs> and I said, the purple laser pointer? She's like, yeah, they have that. Whatever that kid that we had with the purple laser pointer, that's what they have. Unbelievable. And it just shocked me that I'm getting stopped in the hallway and told, it's the kid with the purple laser pointer. So, I mean, it's almost, it's proof that these PowerPoints that we're talking about a specific disease state is not necessarily staying exactly. But if you make it interactive, interactive. they can remember, wait a minute, right. that, lo- that right. looks familiar. So um, Malcolm Knowles has this philosophy of how do we educate adults? They need to have that information when they need it. They have to want it. It has to fit into something that they already know. So whenever I think of that theory, this person knew what other three-year-olds look like. But I had to show them how is it a little bit different if you have this disease. And if you just have a PowerPoint going by, they never interact with that information to figure out how does this information interact with what I already know. Because the picture just goes by them and they see it and are entertained, but they never have to interact with it. Okay. So how do we help people interact with what we're teaching? Instead of just seeing it go by. And that means they have to talk. They have to draw a picture. They have to use that laser pointer. And at the end of the day, me as the educator needs to shut up and let them do it. So you had, it was a situation in which the classroom had to point it out with the laser pointer. Correct. They had to physically engage. They had to see it. Okay. And it was me putting the picture up and then facilitating them interacting with the picture and interacting with the information. That is really interesting. So if if you're talking with individuals um, like me who are constantly trying to increase education and awareness, mm-hmm. give me some advice. I mean, you just gave me yeah. some advice. How can I better explain the disease state to the patients when I'm not with them? Right. So I have a really cheesy acronym. Can I tell you my cheesy acronym? Please. And I figured this out one day. I was um, going to check on a a kiddo that I was taking care of in the hospital. And I walked in the room and the mom's like, she's feeling better. And I said, how do you know? Because she's blowing kisses. And then the little girl blew me a kiss. And it suddenly came to my mind. I teach because I want little kids to blow kisses. So I went back to my office and figured out kiss could be an acronym for why I teach. Oh, okay. So how's that for cheesy? Yeah. No, I love it. Okay. Because that's why. So K stands for... Keep it simple and salient. So salient, what that means is it fits into what they already know. You're connecting to something they already know. And they don't need to know everything about the disease. They need to know what they know so they can go and find out more when they forget what they don't know. They need to know it exists so they can find it. We have the internet. We don't need to teach them everything. I, interactive. How do we help them interact with it? It doesn't mean they're doing a dance party. It means somehow they're interacting with it so that it fits into spaces where they already have knowledge. It has to fit in between things they already know so that it'll stay there. S, this is cheesy, but keep it short. No one wants to hear me talk other than you. Thank you for being so generous and listening to me talk. <laughs> but, but the shorter it is, the more effective we are. Yeah. We've all been to that lecture where they kept going and going, and you're looking at your watch going, can we go to lunch yet? And the whole last 25%, all you heard was, my stomach is growling and I'm bored, and why are you wasting my time? If they had stopped earlier, we would have been like, that was amazing. That's what they wanted me to know. Oh, I get it. So I always say, go short. And then the last one is use a story. We know that if you emotionally connect to the information, you're going to increase your retention. And anytime I think of rare disease, guess what? We have the best stories on the planet. 
We have the best jobs on the planet. We have the best stories on the planet. We need to be using them way more aggressively than we are, in my opinion. So I imagine in rare disease, I mean, it's so complicated. Mm -hmm. So I can see how the idea of keeping it short seems, feels impossible. Awful. Yep. So do you mean maybe then breaking up information, keeping each, you know, mm-hmm. categorizing and keeping well, it short there? That's a great question. So when we think about how adults learn, they need to know the information exists so that they can find it. They don't have to know all the information at that moment in time. So when I think of how do I keep it simple and short, those are kind of two of my keys. I want them to know enough to want to come back for more. Okay. That's when you know you've been successful, when they come back and say, there's something about that purple kid. Can you come back and tell me more about that kid that had the purple laser pointer? And then you tell them more, but also keep it short. So then they keep coming back. Is that the idea? It depends how long, you know. Okay. If they're distracted, it's going to be short. If they have this interacting, I can get them interacting, or I can be like, hey, let's go to the computer and we'll look it up together. Suddenly, they're going to have a lot more tolerance for me spending more time with them, if I could help them show how to find it. In reference to genetics, Mm -hmm. um, what was your message yesterday? You spoke, um, I believe, Mm -hmm. and and you're speaking to an audience of geneticists or genetic counselors and uh, anyone else attending here. Mm -hmm. What was your message in relating this education and genetics? So my message was, if we aren't better educators, there will be no geneticists in the future. We need to educate to keep our entire species going and species alive. And not only for ourselves, but I believe that we need more people that understand what that rare disease is so that when a family comes in for a diagnosis or when they come into an emergency room, someone either has heard of that disease or knows how to find out about that disease. And and the more I do this, the less I want families to believe that everyone's going to know what their disease is but I'm hoping that we can create a population in medicine that at least has the courage to figure out what it is. Yeah, ask more questions. And ask the families, because the families are our experts and have physicians that have the courage to not know everything and to ask the family what they know yes. and have that that buy-in and that interactive conversation so that, yeah, the healthcare physician is going to bring something to the table that the family needs because that's why they showed up, presumably, right? Right. But that it's a more of a, a conversation in, you know, in these emergency situations. Well, that, that is the trick, right, is that mm-hmm. it's often in emergency situations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and some of our patients have the worst experience in those emergencies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I go back to my nephew who was like, I don't know how to tell them what I have. Can, can you text me the sentence I should have them read? I mean, and he, he gets it. He, he, he knows has, that they won't know. And he has this incredible mom who's taught him and... Presumably he can find me and I can help, but still he's like, I don't want to explain this. I don't feel good. I don't want to explain this. That is the thing I do try and remember. Sometimes people are needing the most answers when they are in the worst place possible to have to figure out mm-hmm. how to tell that tell you they need help, mm-hmm. right? That's mm-hmm. in that acute situation. Exactly. exactly. So you mentioned that you think that we might be, do you think there's a shortage of geneticists? Yeah. Great question. So is there a shortage of geneticists? If you look at most studies, yes. Interesting. So the question becomes, do we need more geneticists? Do we need more genetic counselors? Do we need more primary care physicians that have a better understanding of genetics? Do we need more um, nurse practitioners and PAs that are interested in genetics? 
I think my answer is yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> is that fair? I knew I, I had think, a feeling that was coming. Yeah. And and you know, like everything in healthcare and like everything in rare disease, we don't even know what the next thing coming is going to be. And it's happening so fast. So I'm actually surprised yeah. in all our advancements mm-hmm. that we're seeing a shortage in this area. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and part of it is it's a it can be kind of an overwhelming training program. It's it's intimidating to have people think that you're an expert in 7,000 things. Right. <laughs> right? Like, I'm supposed to be the rare disease expert? Are right. you kidding? Good right. thing I have a quick cell phone. I mean... Well, and that's... I mean, that's exactly it, especially when you're given six uh, opportunities in a year. Is that right? Or is it in a month to train on rare diseases? Six to cover 7,000 mm-hmm. mm-hmm. is... Um, mm-hmm. It's not a. It's not. It's not a lot, right? And you you have to just. I always think the geneticists are probably the most humble people, in in medicine because we often say I don't know, but I'm going to email 14 people and see if they know what this is. Well, the fantastic thing is, is if you take your concept of education, we can really then say, okay, what are the commonalities? You don't need to know exactly Mm -hmm. what this individual has Mm -hmm. immediately. Mm -hmm. What you do need to know is that are the questions to ask that will get you there. And those questions are probably true Mm -hmm. among almost all of the 7,000 diseases, right? And, And a lot of times we have the first step and the second step, and the third step. And the diagnostic odyssey is an odyssey because it's an odyssey. <laughs> it's not always simple, right? It, it's No. It, it's an odyssey. That's, no, and we say 7,000, but it's like 7,000 and running, right? There's like, who no, knows like, what it'll be next year? Ab- We're gonna have to change, and you're going to have to change this whole thing next year when it's some bigger number than we know. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, what do you think are the, the most promising um benefits we'll see from all of our advancements in genetics? Great question. You know, I, so I, I I run the end of life palliative care genetics clinic at my hospital. And I I have this hope that someday I'm going to work myself out of a job. That's my goal. And that, you know, over time, we're creating new disorders and new natural histories of disorders as we have new treatments. So I think um, looking at at least for me, the most exciting thing is how do we use all these new treatments and figure out how do we keep the quality of life as good as we can, right. no matter what your treatment is. Whether your treatment is being home with your family because we don't have a directed treatment, or if your treatment is enzyme replacement therapy, or your treatment is gene therapy. At the end of the day, all of these, we want every day to be as good as it can be. Quality of life. It's, that's and what it all comes down to. Understanding that requires partnership, Right. Exactly. Because I don't know what your quality of life is unless you tell me. Like, what's important to you? Is it to have your dog in the hospital with you? Or is it to be home with your dog? Or is it, you know, whatever it is. I can't make that assumption for a family, what their quality of life looks like. So having those conversations, I think, for me, that's been kind of the most fun as as a new treatment comes through is saying, you know, even with these great new treatments, how do we make sure you still have great quality of life? And what does that look like for you now? As the hope keeps going up, how do we make sure the hope and quality go together? Well, I'm really grateful that you're asking those questions and that you are in the position to then educate others Mm -hmm. um, on the information you're receiving. Yeah. So you're a gem and you're a self-proclaimed nerd. 
Um, how do we yeah. how do we multiply <laughs> you? How do we take this understanding of education and the importance of it, mm-hmm. um, and and you know multiply it, make it bigger? And I mean that's that's our biggest problem everywhere. Right. How do we? What's our solution? Oh, I wish I knew that answer because I would work my way out of another job. I like that idea. Exactly. I, I, or you'd have lots and lots and lots of jobs. Little minions. Yeah. Like little minions. That'd be great. <laughs> little minion devils. Exactly. That'd be fun. You know, I I have this vision that the healthcare system and the electronic medical records could actually support rare disease. And it was just really recently that even within my healthcare system where we see over 10,000 rare disease patients a year, we finally got a tab that says emergency healthcare directive. So when one of our patients hits the door, as long as we've put in one of these reports, we're just starting to, um, they know that there is a genetics emergency plan in place. And they know it's one of our families, which is an amazing thing if you hit my door. Yeah. But what do you do when you go to Disney World? What do you do when you're in Orlando and you're not at my hospital? Right. So we give families these same letters that they drag around the country with them. We send them to them as a PDF because you can pull it up on your iPhone. Let's be honest, it's great. Um, I know Make-A-Wish is actually working with the CDC because the CDC website, and there's a way you can incorporate letters along with your um, vaccines for when you travel. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, that would be helpful. We're kind of cheating and using some of those. So anyone who goes on a -A Make-A-Wish, they automatically are trying to do that with CDC anyway. So I've had some families have traveled around the world that take this little app with them. And because it says CDC, it's believed by other people. Somehow it's official. You know, and I feel like this is something that we need to keep being really creative and yet at the same time not reinvent the wheel. Right. And we use things that other people are already using that we can leverage for right, ourselves. Right, So if you're out there and, and you have an emergency care letter, take it with you everywhere you go. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the thing. That's the one thing I'm going to say for sure. And it's frustrating. I mean, mm-hmm. it really puts in... A- additional mm-hmm. onus on to the, the patient. Mm-hmm. And again, yeah. I mean, look, it is our responsibility for our own health as well. However, when these, when this information seems to be readily available somewhere, right. why can it right. be readily available? And even I, I find myself when I do conferences or, you know, present to family physician groups or pediatrician groups, I'm always showing, this is how you get to genetics home reference. This is a, you know, simple things that I use every day of my life and so many families with rare disease use every day in their life. And just having that information that, you know, you're allowed to Google and find the .gov for whatever the disease is and then look at that website. It's an okay thing to do before you go in someone's room. Ab- you but know, absolutely. I, seems so silly. We hear people over and over saying, you know, I hate it when I see my doctor Googling and I actually don't. Because they're looking, right? At least they're humble enough to look. Yeah. I'll give them credit for humility. It makes me nervous when I say, I have lipodystrophy. Have you heard of lipodystrophy? And they say, yes. I'm instantly skeptical. (laughs) You're like, have you really? Have you really? What do you think it is? What what is that? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Because then I feel like, are you just guessing me or have you really? Yeah. Have you really heard about it? So, yeah, searching. I mean, mm-hmm. Google doesn't mean all the answers, but come on, let's it's a try. It's place and... to start. Right. It's a place to start. Absolutely. And I think it shows humility, which is what every family wants their doctor to have. I, get, I think that actually that coming from a place of humility uh, it means you would be more likely to seek information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really, that's, that's pretty crucial. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. 
This episode was recorded live at the 2019 American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics Annual Clinical Genetics Meeting in Seattle, Washington. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rare in Common podcast. If you enjoyed the program, you can subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Rare in Common. Click. Listen. Feel. Feel.